Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today, we have back with us David Ramirez. Welcome back, Ramirez. Thanks. Good to be here. We, yeah, we're, we're going to take up, a, a, I think, a really important, fun topic. But before we get into that, I see that you are one of the presenters for an upcoming conference, The Faith, the faith of Our Fathers, The Law of God is Good and Wise. Uh, tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and 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 why it's so important for guys to take the time, to set aside the time to come and take part of that conference and then perhaps the, the discussions around the tables during breaks. Yeah, sure. Um, I really think it's a really important conference. And I should note right off the bat, this is not a pastor's conference. This is for pastors and laity, and even um, there's specifically a discounted rate for, I believe, uh, 12 to 17-year-olds, so it's only like 15 bucks for uh, older kids, and that is because this is, again, not um, just for the pastors to talk about, but it's something that's affecting the whole church, and thus uh, it really should be uh, learned about and discussed by, by everyone, and the reason why uh, the the conference is on the law of God and that it's good and wise is because, you know, obviously the gospel is what saves. The gospel is what should predominate in our preaching and teaching. Yet the law of God is uh, a good thing, and it is wise, as as the hymn says. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of disagreement in American. Lutheranism or Lutheranism in general concerning, you know, what the law is, what its role is. Um, you know, uh, it's not as common now, but I remember when you and I were getting out of seminary or in seminary, a lot of people would say, uh, in kind of a somewhat joking but somewhat serious sense, that Lutherans are weak on sanctification. Uh, people used to and still do say that we shouldn't, uh, you know, have exhortation and preaching. Um, kind of poo-pooing the third use of the law and, you know, uh, charges of antinomianism. And, you know, you look around the world and we definitely need to have a robust understanding of the law of God, not just because of cultural decay, but also because we are poor, miserable sinners and the law is actually good. It's it's actually um, something that comes from God. And, and we should respect and, and honor. Yes, of course, it always accuses, but it also informs and teaches. And as redeemed believers, we should look upon it as, as wisdom, uh, holy wisdom from God that, that we should also love insofar as we are redeemed believers. And so this conference is going to be on April 12th and 13th. That's a Friday, Saturday. We tried to make it as easy as possible for lay, laity to get there. Um, and to come, even if you can't come for both days, I'd say come for one day. And there's going to be uh, just, I, I think, wonderful discussion, like you said, around the tables um, uh, emanating from those presentations. We'll get some more historical presentations about how 
the Missouri Synod or American Lutheranism has struggled with understanding the law of God. Uh, we'll have several presentations on uh, specifically preaching where a lot of, you know, the rubber kind of hits the road, but I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to try and uh, be exhaustive in, in covering that uh, in, in this uh, uh, right now. But yeah, over those two days, we're, we're going to talk a lot and learn a lot about the law of God. And I think the lineup really is uh, really excellent. And um, that, oh, I should also mention, it's going to be in Collinsville, Illinois, which is just east of St. Louis. So very easy to fly in and out of and get to. It's right in the heartland. So I would encourage people to go to the website. It's uh, yourgrandfatherschurch.org. And you can sign up. You can see all who the presenters are and what the schedule is. And, you know, also some recommended uh, reading and resources if you want to read up on it. But I, I just can't encourage people enough because this is a major issue. And I, I really do think it's one of, one of, if not the great issue of our time that we, we need to wrestle with um, as, as Lutherans in America and specifically the Missouri Synod. That's not to say if... Other Lutherans aren't interested. They they should come, but yeah, right, yeah. So April twelfth and thirteenth at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois. Uh, to register, go to yourgrandfatherschurch.org. dot uh, org. I'm planning to be there, God willing, and so uh, hopefully I'll see many of you guys there as well. And so is it for, possible? Yeah, go ahead. That link in the. Oh, I was just going to say, and uh, is it possible for us to put a link in the? show notes so people can just click right through. Awesome. Great. Yeah. So what I want to chat with you today, uh, you know, there's always this, uh, or or not always, but it seems lately there's this ongoing discussion and it usually revolves around uh, a particular um, end times eschatological view, you know, the post-millennialists versus the pre- and a-millennialists. I don't think it's exactly that. But John MacArthur said, we don't win down here, we lose. We lose on this battlefield, but we win on the big one. And then in our in our time, at least in my lifetime, or, or, or perhaps just my ministry, Luther's understanding of the theology of the cross has become somewhat used with kind of a defeatist attitude, uh, like a theology of losing. Um, Whereas uh, I think Luther means that, yes, we're going to suffer, but there's victory even in that suffering. And and so we we take on this um, dour and sour and defeatist attitude and almost use our theology as a means uh, or or as a reason for inaction instead of the very impetus to do something. And so we're going to take up that co- topic today on Christian vitalism. So, and you came up with that term, and I think it's great. Um, what do you mean by Christian vitalism? Well, I, I should say I, I I didn't come up with it. I, I mean, maybe I came up with the title for the show, but <laughs> I know others have used it. Uh, so, truth and advertising. Um, so, that term vitalism. I, I will be brutally honest. I don't know all of the philosophical and the tradition behind that term. Even though I don't think it's necessary to know all of the ins and the outs, but. Um, 
when when you talk about vitalism, um, th- there's there's this stream of you know kind of pagan philosophical thought in uh, and and they call it vitalism. Um, I, I want to quote from an article uh, uh, written by. Um, a guy at the American Reformer, that's a website uh, publication named Christian Winter. Uh, he's a, it just came out in May 2023. Um, it's online. Uh, he's a doctoral student in politics at Hillsdale College. So I, I don't know him. So I, and, and I don't really know the person he's responding to either, but he's responding to a Lutheran layman, John Errett. Um, again, maybe you know who he is. I've, I've never really heard of him before. But Errett wrote this uh, critique of vitalism that um, Winter really thinks kind of fell flat. It didn't really deal with the real topic. And um, even from my relative ignorance, I tend to agree with Winter. So, uh, quoting from Winter's article, uh, the fundamental concern of the pagan vitalists, their standard is life itself. You know, uh, now this is me, you know, like vitality, life, right? You know, um, yeah. and now quoting from him again, from for them, whatever promotes lives of natural human flourishing is what should direct political, religious, and cultural movements. Um, and he admits that Eret, Eret, uh, rightly notes that uh, BAP and his vitalist followers looked to Nietzsche as the foremost defender of life. Um, and, you know, he writes, Winter, he says, a Christian critique that challenges Nietzsche, BAP, and the Bronze Age mindset must pro- proceed by showing that the kind of life the pagan vitalists idolize is, in fact, inferior to the Christian life properly lived. I think the reason why he says that is because it seems like Eret's critique kind of went along uh, the lines of what you're saying, kind of like a theology of the cross, and now the cross has come and we have to look at everything differently. And there is some truth in that. Um, however, quoting from Winter again, such a critique would show that Nietzschean or BAPian way of life is too low. The arrows of the Bronze Age mindset miss the mark not by overshooting, but by failing to reach the target. And I think that's the crucial distinction. And that's what mm-hmm. I want to jump off in and talk about Christian vitalism, because we shouldn't cede to the pagans that they actually are uh, more vitalistic or more alive or more into true life um, and human flourishing than Christians are. We right. actually know who the source of life is, um, uh, God himself, uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, he's the light of the world. He's the life of the world. And so any type of critique, this is where I totally agree with Winter, any type of critique is not saying, oh, they're too into life, whereas we're not into life, or kind of echoing your quote of MacArthur, you know, well, we lose down here in a defeatist sense, but rather we are absolutely and ultimately uh, victors in Christ. Now that means, like you are, you already said, uh, there will be suffering. There will be reverses of an earthly sort here in this mm-hmm. life, and that's an important part of the, the of the true theology of the cross. If if you even want to get into that term, I, I don't find the term very helpful personally. But mm-hmm. that's a d- discussion for a different time. But to me, it, it, it you lean into this. You say you want to talk about vitalism. We're we're the only real vitalists because we're the only ones who understand real life, and so Christian vitalism uh, should not just be asserted, but it should also be 
seen. And I guess that's what I uh, really want to talk about today is how, you know, Christian vitalism is connected to the, to the true life in Christ for, for mankind. And so think about that term, uh, not vitalism, but vitality. Vitality means full of life. Uh, to put it more colloquially, uh, people who, are, who have vitality have pep in their staff step. They want to win, uh, you know, uh, or you could, you could talk about like, um, Jesus's warning in Matthew, uh, 27, when he talks about, uh, tribulations and how, um, the disciples are going to be put to death and how they're going to be hated by all nations. Uh, this is in Matthew 22. And in verse 10, he says, then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Well, if your love grows cold, you are spiritually dead. Just like if a body grows cold, that means you are physically dead. Um, But Jesus Mm -hmm. says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So yes, um, there will be defeats here in an earthly sense. There will be suffering and tribulation. Um, to, to use a uh, kind of a uh, more recent uh, you know, book or epic analogy, you can think about in The Lord of the Rings where they talk about the long defeat. You know, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean they don't fight. <laughs> it's not a loser mentality. It's not a loser um, theology. We know that our victory is assured. And, and that's a proper understanding if you want to talk about the theology of the cro- cross. Yeah. So, it, it, uh, well, you get so that, th- that's how I you get that up Christianism. Yeah, you get that understanding uh, a little bit from you know St. Paul's journeys. Uh, I think I've mentioned this in in a podcast before, where he he's recounting in Second Corinthians, you know, all that he went through, and he he ends that by saying that. Therefore, I delight in my sufferings for the sake of Christ, in my weaknesses, and in the beatings, and the all the things that He endures. He delights in it, and yeah. there's the instead of delighting in those things, like those are signs that I am alive and that God is working out His plan here in time. We see it as uh, a reason to to wallow and complain. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. I mean, you know, I-, I love that passage where Paul is like, yeah, you know, I've learned how to rejoice in all things. And, he, and like you said, he goes through that list, like bad times, beatings, horrible stuff, but also he's learned how to uh, rejoice and live uh, in uh, not just poverty and bad times, but in good times too. Those have their temptations as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so why is this such a big problem in Lutheranism today, um, besides kind of this misunderstanding of the theology of the cross, I think that uh, Marquardt really puts his finger on this uh, in a 2003 Theological Observer. And uh, if you don't mind putting that in the show notes, now I'm asking tons of you. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I'm being demanding now. (laughs) Um, the, The link uh, if you put it in there, theological observers, for those who don't know, those are very brief studies or essays. Um, they aren't a standalone article in the Concordia Theological Quarterly. And so the link that uh, Pastor Broughton will send you to, or if you click on the link, what you'll be sent to is a PDF. Um, and you have to go to the 
the the 22nd page of it to find it. Uh, but the title is called Antinomian Aversion to Sanctification. And this is literally a, a, just about exactly 20 years ago. And Marquardt, who is an astute observer of, of Lutheranism and, you know, Christianity as a whole, um, uh, if you don't mind, I want to read a little bit of it. Is that okay? Please do. So um, he he writes, an emerited brother writes that he is disturbed by a kind of preaching that avoids sanctification and seemingly questions the formula of concord about the third use of the law. The odd thing is that this attitude, he writes, is found among would-be confessional pastors, even though it is really akin to the antinomianism of Seminex. He asks, how can one read the scriptures over and over and not see how much and how often our Lord in the Gospels and the Apostles and the Epistles call for Christian sanctification, crucifying the flesh, putting down the old man and putting on the new man, abounding in the work of the Lord, provoking to love and good works, being fruitful, etc., etc. Marquardt continues by saying, I really have no idea where the anti-sanctification bias comes from. Perhaps it is a knee-jerk overreaction to evangelicalism. Since they stress practical guidance for daily living, we should not. And I think that just hits the nail on the head. I mean, mm -hmm. you think about how Walter was maligned by non-Lutheran Protestants when the synod came over, or the synod was maligned. And, you know, all these non-Lutheran Protestants said, oh, you, you've retained, you know, uh, private confession. Um, you've retained all, uh, you know, wearing robes and chanting and all this stuff. That's all Roman. That's all papist. You know, you have crucifixes. How dare you? And Walter, mm -hmm. of course, said, well, we're not going to, I mean, I'm summarizing, but, you know, we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. If we got every, if we got rid of everything that the Roman church does, we'd have to get rid of baptism or the creeds or the Lord's Supper. Like, this is stupid. It's dumb. Yeah. But I really think uh, that, that Marquardt really hits the nail on the head. Like, and, but I mean, I sympathize with, with those, uh, you know, confessionals from, 20 or 30 years ago, um, and many of them who are still around today who do have, I think, perhaps an overreaction. Well, not perhaps, I'll just say what it is. It is an overreaction that their fear of evangelicalism and all of its attendant um, symptoms uh, in the synod, whether it be kind of um, evangelical worship practices, you know, church growth or whatnot, or, uh, you know, uh, an over-focus on, you know, almost kind of like a 12-step program, uh, you know, guide to Christian living instead of something rooted in justification. I think that they overreacted. I, I think that Marquardt's warning has definitely proven to be true and is generally acknowledged that that, that was an overreaction. But, um, I, I definitely uh, think that um, Marquardt's essay is is really good. I mean, Marquardt is not a guy who ever. Uh, I I unfortunately never got to uh, learn from him directly. I've only read his writings, mm -hmm. but but you got to take classes with him, didn't you? Yeah, I had one class with him, but and I mean, it was he would be just the, before he would retired. But he was on campus. He was always around. Yeah, right. And he's the last guy to be anti, um, uh, you know, uh, liturgical or anti-sacramental. Mm -hmm. Or I mean, I mean, this is not a guy who could be accused of being a non-confessional Lutheran. I mean, he even says it in his essay. He says, uh, you, you know, um, 
Uh, it is, of course, highly necessary to stress the holy means of grace in our preaching, but we must beware of creating a kind of clerilist caricature that gives the impression that the whole point of Christian life is to be constantly taking in preaching, absolution, and holy communion, while ordinary daily life and callings are just humdrum time fillers in between. That would be like saying that we live to eat rather than eating to live. Right. Um, it, it's it's a great little theological observer piece. I really recommend people reading it. And um, I I think he hit the nail on the head that there was a confessional Lutheran overreaction to the legitimate dangers of evangelicalism. And I, I, I think that that may have led to almost like a, uh, you know, confessional anti-vitality <laughs> understanding, kind of a sour, dour, we just lose uh, down here mentality. Yeah. So, I, I mean, is that something that just happens when you do a theology bell reaction, you think? Or, uh, I, I mean, were we just living by reaction instead of not only saying, well, here's where that's wrong and this is what we ought to do. We're just reacting to it to try to not lose our numbers. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Um, far be it from me. I wasn't in the fight then. And yeah. I do think that we should be humble, especially when we approach our forefathers or even older compatriots who overreacted because um, we weren't there. And I kind of steal that line from uh, Professor David Scare when I, I remember he was doing, I think, a fireside chat. Um, I don't remember, but um, people, someone asked him, like, hey, you were on the same side during the battle for the Bible with these people who later tried to bring in all this evangelicalism. You know, why were you allied with them? What was going on? Didn't you see what was going on? And he, and he kind of, in his you know, scare away, almost yelled at him um, and said, you weren't there. Like you weren't there. You don't understand where the lines were and what the fight was. And in some ways, the desperation to preserve the inerrancy of, of the scriptures or the understanding, the belief in the inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think we should be humble when we critique, um, you know, as Monday morning quarterbacks, you know, like it's, it's easier, yeah. but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, uh, on the other hand, not critique and not correct. I mean, that that's always kind of the game that you not only are fighting against the battle of the day, but seeking to make sure that you don't lurch to the side so hard that you fall off the horse on the other direction. And I think yeah. that's the cycle we're in right now, trying to balance ourselves in a proper understanding of the law and sanctification. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think that's where we're at. Okay, so um, so then, what are our options? Like, just continuing down <laughs> where we're going, and, and and if you're going to put forward the way to go, what's that? What's that way look like? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think that um, if if we're gonna have a way forward, then I I think that we should be uh, very proud of the vitality that we have and that, you know, in a world where hearts have grown cold, um, in a world where there is lots of just, um, not just despondency, but also just a lot of, um, oh, I can't think of the word, but um, uh, not having firm footing, you, you know, just people mm -hmm. are kind of lurching around. 
we should be promoting a Christian vitalism. Uh, whether you want to yeah. use that term or not really doesn't matter. The point is, is that we should, uh, the vitality of the reality of the gospel and of Christ and our life in him should be obvious in our in, in, in what we believe, but also in what we do. And when I say what we do, I mean also preaching and teaching and leading our everyday Christian lives. So, I mean, mm. the, the, the vitality should be oozing out of our pores, so to speak, and it should be noticeable um, because we do have true life and we do have the true message. Um, there's a quote that I want to read you. It's, uh, you, you know, what I found was that it's to Plato, but maybe someone can fact check me on this. Um, he writes, he who is only an athlete is too crude, too vulgar, too much a savage. He who is a scholar only is too soft, too effeminate. The ideal citizen is the scholar athlete, the man of thought and the man of action. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that there needs to be a balance. I think that it's important for us to, you know, study theology. I think it's important for us to, uh, care about why we're doing what we're doing, but also if it doesn't lead to action, then we have an imbalance. And here, obviously, Plato is not talking about the Christian life, but he's talking about kind of earthly life, uh, you know, the citizen, the ideal citizen, but it's a man of thought and a man of action. And I think that if the reaction of the confessionals was to perhaps underplay or not, you know, uh, not, uh, well, I'll just put it in this way, maybe be too dour and sour um, and and not really talk about the Christian life, then we need a correction on that. That's not to mm -hmm. slope into it's about uh, deeds and not creeds, or it's just about action and not about theology, but we, but we need to uh, move from uh, thinking to doing. And that, that's, that's what is uh, exemplified in the scriptures. And that's what's exemplified, uh, as you said, with, with Paul. You know, he has the hope of Christ and he can rejoice in good times and bad. Um, and that's also exemplified with, with Jesus. Um, he, he teaches, he preaches, but he also does. He conquers. And yes, we might not always win down here in an earthly sense, but we should be men of action. And that is going to, you know, be embodied by preaching, teaching, doing, encouraging. And um, I think also, as we'll get into later, that not only Jesus uh, should be an inspiration in this, but also uh, King David, both negatively and positively. But yeah. the, the terms I would put forth, and uh, I know I probably won't win a lot of friends with this, um, is that <laughs> well, if, you know, before we get into that? Oh yeah, uh, sure. I just want to. Um, so, in other words, it it, it sounds like um, even though we might not always win every single battle down here, you are assured not to win if you'd never act. Well, uh, and yeah, so you'd and, rather and you'd rather lose doing something than lose doing nothing. Sure, and and even and even. Um, uh, I mean, th think about an analogy in football. Okay, so maybe you give up two yards, but giving up two yards is better than giving up 15 yards, right? Correct. So you lost yeah. two yards, but you didn't give up a first down. So sometimes yeah. you even find victories in defeats. 
And knowing that we have the ultimate victory should mean that we should do, not to be too cliche, but as best as we can with what we've got, where we're at. That's the Christian Mm -hmm. mindset because we have victory assured. So we should be pushing as hard as we can, knowing that sometimes we'll be gaining ground and sometimes we'll be losing ground. But that's actually not the point. The point is to be faithful in utter confidence of our ultimate victory. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and and that gets to, I I think if, if I could put like a term on it that I would say is even better than kind of Christian vitalism, which, you know, I can take or leave, whatever. But um, to speak in memes, there's that, you know, meme out there where you got the, the little guy and there's two paths before him, you know, which way Western man or which way, you know, whatever. And I would say, which way Lutheran man, and we can either go towards what I would suggest is the way forward, which I guess you could say is, you know, similar to a so-called Christian vitalism. And that would be heroic Lutheranism, uh, ready to, not just hear and love and accept the gospel, but also to fight and to be men of uh, not just thought, but also action. And that would be heroic Lutheranism. Um, On the other hand, and I know I won't win, like I said, many friends uh, with this title, I think on the other side is uh, Hogwarts Lutheranism. And I think those are the two (laughs) choices (laughs) heroic lutheranism or hogwarts lutheranism okay so um well let's do the difficult one first the hogwarts lutheran the one that will so that we can end on the good note and not the note that everyone's going to hate you on um you just want to end on the gospel right (laughs) (laughs) that's right it must predominate (laughs) um yeah (laughs) so so why hogwarts well i mean it's no secret that i i don't like harry potter um, and as tempting as it would be to just go on a rant against Harry Pothead, I I don't want to do that. I actually think that <laughs> I think that this um, analogy is apt um, because I think Hogwarts Lutheranism is very tempting. Just like I would say, uh, the Harry Potter series is very tempting, uh, but ultimately not helpful, and even worse, just not good. I mean, besides all the witchcraft um, in Harry Potter, I think it's a bad epic because I I know that there's a lot of people who probably would want to argue that, you know, Harry Potter is, you know, it's just a fun story. It's just good. It's good guys versus bad guys, blah, blah, blah. But even if they wouldn't find it problematic, to use that word, uh, because of all the witchcraft, I would still point out that it is not trying to find the lane of just some story. It is an epic um, of, you know, how many volumes are there? I don't even know. I mean, seven, eight? I think seven total. Something like that. Is it seven? Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big series and it's some serious world building uh, that has gone into it. And uh, it is trying, uh, I think this is indisputable, it's trying to be in the same lane as like Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia. And so again, Mm -hmm. like I said, besides all the the witchcraft stuff, which I think renders it, you know, um, not a good idea, period. But even if you aren't convinced on that front, um, I think that um, Harry Potter presents a world with all of the outward trappings and kind of uh, the feel 
and the aura of traditionalism, but not the soul or vitality, if you will. So, for example, you know, Hogwarts, it's got, you know, dusty libraries, tall ceilings, uh, Victorian era settings, seemingly old world or old school hierarchies and institutions. And yet it is not very traditional. The world is not traditional. Uh, What's the author's name again? What's that lady's name? I'm sorry. I forgot. J.K. Rowling or Rowling. Yeah. Yeah. Rowling. Um, I mean, she's not a traditionalist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. She's very feminist, um, probably even beyond just egalitarian, but feminist. Um, And, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, my buddy Pastor Remke here in Kenosha Circuit, and you know he called it faux traditionalism, and I think that's a good way to sum it up. Or as I summed it up before, it's got the outward trappings of traditionalism, but not the reality, not the vitality. Um, I, I mean, couldn't that be just England in general and the C of E? <laughs> yeah. I, okay. Fair enough. I mean, yeah. If, if you want to extend the critique, uh, that that is, uh, you know, the current state of England, um, ye olde England, right? You know, um, yeah, and and the Church of England, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I I agree absolutely. And you know, I mean, in terms of it trying to be in the lane of an epic, I mean, not only do I think that it, it it's kind of absurd to have a woman author write a people's epic, you know, because that's what it's trying to be. It's trying to be the Anglo, an Anglosphere epic, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, a, a huge story that people can, can really sink their teeth into. Um, but also, like I said before, it's actually feminist. Um, uh, not only is there, is it not Christian, um, but, but it is feminist. I mean, you've got girls fighting alongside of guys, guys purposefully putting them in harm's way. But also you've got like just the assumed egalitarianism with co-ed sports. And, uh, and that's easy in a, in a magical world uh, to downplay mm-hmm. physical created uh, differences. Another, mm-hmm. another place where I think that, um, you know, it really falls flat and is not a good epic and, and really shows kind of, you know, the, the inability of, of Rowling or a, a woman in general to be able to, to write an epic for a people. Again, I'm not saying that women couldn't write a story, you know, um, but that, 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 it really takes a man and not just any man, but a very special man to write an epic for a people like, like, um, you, you know, the, the song of Roland or, um, you know, Oh, what's the famous, uh, Spanish one. I, it, I'm drawing a blank. It's not El Cid. It's, um, it's Don Quixote, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, but anyway, that, that's kind of into literary theory, which we don't need to get into. But I mean, another example is, Think about how catty um, in a very female way. I mean, guys and girls both have their problems, but there is a a distinctive female cattiness between the male characters like uh, Harry and uh, what's his friend's name, Ron or something, you know, the redheaded boy. Yeah, Ron. Um, And so, frankly, I, I think it's a very it's a very gamma story. And I guess we'd have to refer people to you and you and Curtis's discussion about kind of different types of, of men when it comes to, to gammas. 
Um, and, and this is natural. It's hard for the sexes to really understand each other. But to get back to the main point, um, I think Hogwarts, uh, Hogwarts Lutheranism, uh, why this analogy works is because Hogwarts is a place that has the trappings, uh, kind of the creature comforts of an older uh, world. And uh, that's very attractive to people who find modern life um, uh, destabilizing and disenchanting, and it's mm-hmm. and and they know that there's something wrong. But the problem with Hogwarts is is that again, it has all the trappings. It has maybe not all, but some of the externals. But it doesn't have the true life and vitality um, that that ought to be there in an epic for a people. Um, mm-hmm. To bring it into the Lutheran, uh, American Lutheran context, I think an example that uh, we would all agree on, at least in the Missouri Synod, uh, would be you look at um, the Society of the Holy Trinity. So that mm. is a group that was founded back in the late 90s um, for evangelical Catholics, uh, you know, folks that wanted to focus on uh uh, you know, renewal of the liturgy, renewal of traditional worship practices, and and, and also traditional theology and things like that. You know, uh, insofar as it's traditional for the for the ELCA, right? Um, mm-hmm. It was overwhelmingly ELCA, and yet um, it, it, I'm sure some of your listeners know, but if they don't, um, I, I came out of the ELCA. I had uh, lots of encounters with the Society of the Holy Trinity or the STS, and I found it very wanting. It was almost like um, escapism in the worst sense where, uh, and and I know it was very meaningful for some people who were in it and, you know, it did some good, but at the end of the day, it was, I view it, uh, it was a place to retreat and to have some comforts um, and have some trappings of traditionalism, but you can hardly call yourself traditional if you have you know, women in collars, and you're just trying to turn back the clock a couple decades. I mean, it, it really did come across, and I know this isn't very polite, but it came across as LARPing. You know, it mm-hmm. had the trappings, but not the vitality. Um, and while that was is probably an example that all of us in the Missouri Synod can kind of point at and be like, yeah, duh, I worry that that same temptation towards a Hogwarts Lutheranism, a LARPing Lutheranism, uh, you know, that has kind of the outward uh, trappings and the outward comfortableness, uh, you know, but really doesn't have the vitality. I I think that that's a real, uh, real danger. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you point that out because I mean, I spent a year in England and I kind of see what you're talking about. Um, But I think closer to home, you know, and I'm sure I've had conversations with you about this offline, which is whenever Gottesdienst posts or publishes or says something that doesn't have to do with the liturgy, what's the common response? It's, yeah, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. You know, you're yeah. about the historic liturgy. Um, continue just to be about the trappings instead of the vitality which brings those trappings to life, right? That that yeah. the reason why we do those things, right, right, and and of course I know you guys would say the liturgy is is not just trappings, and I and right. I would of course agree, but but it's almost like it's this 
it's it's like trying to push that which is not trappings into trappings so we can stay comfortable. Like it, it yeah. really gets me angry because it's like, no, uh, the divine liturgy is divine and it brings real life and it brings real light. And that should uh, push us to have vitality in all aspects of our life. So why wouldn't we take lessons from the liturgy and the word that is given in it and and push forward and have it exude in in our daily life or in our Christian life or in our ministry or you know, you know mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah, I I'm with you. I I really do not understand it. I mean like if you guys stop talking about the liturgy, I would get the critique, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, right. you guys are supposed to be talking about this and you never talk about it anymore. You become obsessed with something else, but it's like, that's not true. So right. it's something else. I don't know. So, okay. So Hogwarts Lutheranism, um, the trappings, but not the substance, um, that gives life to the external, um, demonstration of that substance. And, so, so maybe you'll get the, to this in further points down the road, but do you see uh, the primary divide within, say, the Missouri Synod as a, which has been in the past kind of like the worship war type things, or do you see it more in terms of those who see the liturgy as the an the enacting of that vitality and bringing it into the homes and into the public square versus those who just want smells and bells. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's an either or, I mean, like obviously there's still the divide between those who wish to hold to the historic um, liturgy and the historic practices, which flow from the, the doctrine of the Lutheran church. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. that, th- that divide is still real. We still have a huge segment of the synod that I, I would say, regardless of whether it's um, you know uh, malicious or purposeful or uh, naive or whatever. I'm not trying to delve into that. There's tons of people who have taken on evangelical practices that flow from evangelical theology, uh, American evangelical theology, and not Lutheran theology, and that is not good. I think that divide is still there. But I mean, all of those fights have been, uh, those discussions have played out. I mean, those fights are still mm-hmm. there. Those, you know, there's still a scrum line. Um, but I think most of what needs to be said on that has been said. Um, I think yeah. that now we really have a, a, a much hotter uh, conflict or discussion uh, based upon the uh, you, you know, the law. And yeah. um, you see this ripping right through those who would all have been on the same side 20 years ago, even even 15 years ago. Yeah. Now, here, so here's the question. The, the, the other side of the contemporary worship slash liturgical worship battle, any idea where they fall? Or are they just as divided as, say, the confessional line, so to speak? Yeah, I think they are divided because I think that um, I, I, you know, I, I find, and, and, and this is anecdotal, but I find that it is interesting how some folks who um, are 
on either side of the worship question are, you know, on, I mean, it's almost turning into like a, a four-part uh, division, you, you know, in terms of uh, the law. You've got folks that are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, into kind of quote-unquote contemporary worship, even though it's really just rehashed stuff from 40 years ago. But a lot of those folks um, have uh, cozied up to or, um, you know, interact with uh, quote-unquote liturgical types that are, mm-hmm. are, you know, soft on the law, so to speak. And then there's, I, I do think that there's, uh, there, that there's younger folks that grew up in um, not very liturgical uh, churches, and um, maybe that's not their practice, but they are concerned with the antinomianism and, and the lawlessness of American Christianity in general, and also in, in the Synod. So I, I, do, yeah. I, I do think that these things are cutting through both, both camps. Uh, so that's very okay. both interesting and confusing. <laughs> All the lines yeah, are being no, redrawn. No, yeah, no, I think that's, but that's a good point. I mean, we're we're kind of at this um, this point, um, this kairos, right? That this point in history that is going to be kind of revelatory in terms of where are the lines being drawn now. We've already had those past battles. We've made our disagreements. We've kind of called truce, so to speak, but now, and we've called truce mainly because there's something else on the table. There's something bigger. There's bigger fish to fry. Um, Maybe I. I don't know. I mean, it. It. It just everything seems like pretty scattershot. I. I, I don't know if I would agree that people have called truce. I think those wars are still being fought. I. I think though that you're right about like other things are on the table, and so there's different priorities. But I. I I totally agree with you in that this is huge and um, it's something that always comes up that Lutheranism has to battle. All of Christianity has to battle this understanding of the law. And I do think it's linked with, with Christian vitality and um, Mm -hmm. this understanding of, Hey, we, we need to be, we need to be active. We need to be moving. We need to be conquerors. Yeah. And uh, so, so how, You've laid out what Hogwarts Lutheranism. What are the um, the, the points of compare? Where does this? Where do we see this operating within Lutheranism in general, and perhaps specifically in the Missouri Synod? Yeah, and I'd even get a little bit more specific than that within the confessional camp, um, okay. meaning the the liturgical side of things. Uh, um, so I'd, I'd like to throw out three points. Uh, in relation to to the synod, especially the confessional Lutherans, even though this can be said uh, among the more quote unquote contemporary uh, crowd as well. Um, point number one is uh, feminism. I brought this up with Hogwarts, and I think it perfectly plays in uh, with with uh, with with even in very liturgical churches. And your point about the Church of England is very good. They've got high liturgy and smells and bells beyond uh, anything, and yet they're totally feminist. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in the Synod, um, you know, even though women uh, cannot wear collars, so again, an outward thing, or consecrate, uh, you, you know, uh, praise be to God, but the functions of the pastoral office are so circumscribed and narrowly defined, and that has gotten this way over the decades, that 
um, it th- th- there is this kind of functional feminism, like unless a woman is in a collar in a pulpit preaching, then she can do whatever she wants as if mm-hmm. man and woman weren't created to complement each other and have different roles. And, and yeah. th- the sad thing is, is that 20, 30 years ago, the confessionals would be agreed uh, on a lot more when it came to male and female roles. And there's been huge confusion that has filtered in. And I would say under the cover of, um, oh, look, it's only the pastor who's consecrating. It's only the pastor who's preaching from the pulpit. So no, nothing's changed. But that's us buying into an argument that we never held to. We, we always connected yeah. the, the pastoral office being reserved for men as being based upon uh, the created order, the orders of creation. And that is far more expansive than just talking about uh, the pastoral office and its very narrowly defined functions. I mean, frankly, it's not mm-hmm. just about the office of the ministry, but laymen uh, in the Missouri Synod were understood to lead the congregation, to be the leaders, to be the officers, to be the elders, and frankly, not so long ago, to be the voters. And and mm-hmm. so this used to all just be taken for granted in the confessional camp, and it really has eroded. And and this is not good. So, I mean, sure, may, maybe there's, uh, you know, churches where, uh, you know, it's the pastor who is presiding and preaching, but the parish is not led by men. And that's, that, 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 that is sad. That's a sad thing. Now, maybe again, this isn't the time and place to talk about like why that is. Maybe the men weren't leading. Um, Maybe the women were trying to usurp. I don't know. I'm not trying to get into specifics, but what I'm saying is, is that we don't want to be this Hogwarts Lutheranism where we have the trappings of traditionalism. And yet, it's totally egalitarian, if not feminist. Um, and we need a recover of patriarchy in our parishes. So that's point number one. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you want to talk more about that. No, I mean, I think that's a really great point. And that probably begins with just how the pastor himself carries himself and his interaction with his own wife, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we could talk for hours about how, you, how, how, how this has infiltrated and gone bad. Mm-hmm. But it... it yeah, it's that that that's one of the big touch points. I think yeah. another touch point, which is tightly related, is um, kind of the psychologicalization of the church. Um, and this one, I, I mean, again, I'm not a Harry Potter expert. I I just can't stand that series. Um, but so I can't make a good connection to it. So sorry. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of uh, Hogwarts Lutheranism being the trappings without the vitality or the soul. I mean, again, you can have a lot of confessional parishes or, you know, talk about the pastor and his role being very important and blah, 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 and Christian fathers being very important and elders being important and all these things. So, it, I mean, it kind of does flow out of this, fe- uh, you know, feminization of the church. But in terms of psychologicalization, you know, um, with the rise of modern psychology, it really takes away from the idea as the pastor as giving advice and wisdom. And again, it also mm-hmm. circumscribes his role to, okay, you can preach, you can lead Bible study, but you need to leave the real 
quote-unquote counseling and advice giving to the quote-unquote experts. I mean, I view it as a very, you know, kind of shamanistic displacement of the role of both pastors and elder Christians, both male and female. This cuts across lines. It's not just uh, a feminization of the church, even though psychology and feminism are tightly linked, but also it steals and strips away the role for not just the pastor as the one who's to preach and teach the word of God and in all of its wisdom, but also older men should teach the younger men and older women should teach and encourage the younger women. And, uh, you know, kind of this professionalization and sacralization of psychology really, really uh, destroys the essence of giving Christian wisdom. So again, we still have a pastor getting up and giving a sermon. We still have Bible studies and things like that. But I mean, how many times have you heard pastors? I've heard it from many pastors say, yeah, I'll meet with a couple or a person uh, a few times, but then I'm going to send them to excerpts because that's not my job. I, I can't I can't handle that. I need to send them to people who really know what they're talking about. I've heard that so many times and it blows my mind. Now, again, I'm not saying that there is never a time to get help from someone who has expertise. Obviously, if someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm really struggling with these things, but also I'm having like pains in my chest. Yeah, I'm going to refer them to a doctor, right? You know, like go see your doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm not a biologist. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a medical doctor. <laughs> Yet at the same <laughs> but time. And a woman is. <laughs> yeah, I do know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Which Supreme Court justices don't know, right? Mm-hmm. But. So I'm not saying there's never a time for outside help and there's never a time for expertise, but it is just incredible to me that we just, you know, view ourselves as incapable to actually minister to people with the word of God and wisdom. I mean, you know, if psychology wasn't already like fundamentally discredited by its stances for one, like, I mean, most psychologists are fine with all this tranny nonsense. But also it's reproducibility crisis. I mean, I, I just can't believe people take psychology seriously as a science because science means that you can, you can actually reproduce your results. And the reproducibility crisis across all the scientific fields is notoriously bad with psychology. I mean, most of the stuff that they pass off as alleged truth has never been proven by the scientific process. It's really incredible. And so mm-hmm. not only are these experts not really by and large experts, but the field as a whole is just incredibly discredited. But even if it wasn't discredited, even if that wasn't true, what I just said, which it is, it's still absurd. I mean, imagine a pastor a hundred years ago saying this, well, I'm sorry, Mr. And Mrs. So-and-so, uh, I, I, I'm only a pastor. Uh, I'm only like a forgiveness dispenser. I can't, I can't give you wisdom on marriage after like one or two times meeting with you. That's crazy. Right. That's not how our forefathers ministered. They helped people. Now, we should be humble on what we can and can't do and what we do and don't know. But I mean, we're supposed to be the shepherds of God's people and also the elder men and the elder women. I mean, give me a break. I'd rather have a grandmother or a grandfather give advice to a Christian couple or someone struggling with something uh, who has the experience of life than some quote unquote expert who, uh, you know, who doesn't know anything. I mean, 
give yeah. me them every day of the week. Um, well, I mean, it's yeah. It seems like to go back to your um, your football analogy. Imagine punting as soon as you got possession of the ball every single time, and that's <laughs> yeah. that's kind yeah. of that's kind of what this is. It's it's you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, winners want the ball, right? They yeah. they they want to to be the one to pass it. They want to be the one to receive it or take the handoff. Um, they don't just want to get it out of their hands. And um, th- as you said, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have some humility and some some actual self-reflective perspective to know what our limits are. But w- we're not living there. We're living in as soon as something comes our way, we're punting. Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's not the that's not the place to. That's not no that's not living. It's it's a bad mindset, and I do think it is a bad mindset that flows from a lack of an appreciation for the wisdom that God gives us in the Bible. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you go back to the synodical explanation of the small catechism. Um, well, I use the forty three edition, um, but you know, wh- you know, why is God's word given? Well, number one, to make us wise unto salvation, and also to train us in holy living, and that means that the the word of God is sufficient and powerful for all times and purposes. Again, I, I don't want to say I'm an expert on everything, but I better as a pastor be able to give advice on things from the word of God or else that I'm not doing my job. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what this all kind of fosters, unfortunately, is, I mean, I really like your analogy about punting. Um, it, it really it sets up the the pastor and and wise Christians in the parish to be kind of you know ready to just either throw pills at people who have problems again i'm not saying medicine is never appropriate but you know just throw pills at the problem or throw people to experts and um i i i don't like what i see sometimes where it seems that you know confessional lutherans you know, they've got their little, you know, robed man club area, but they better not step out of it. Um, and, you know, that's not your job. You can't give advice. You can't give wisdom. You got to pass people off to the experts. It's almost like they're like, oh, you're forgiveness dispensers and that's it. You know, you mm-hmm. can't give advice. And I think that, that 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 is fundamentally a problem with understanding what God's word and specifically God's law does teach us. Uh, Peterson, pa- Pastor Peterson, um, uh, you know, I, I, he said this for years, but I, I remember him talking about how people would push back on him about giving advice in the confessional because they would, quote unquote, say, nope, you're just there to give forgiveness. That's it. Right. And it's like... That's crazy. That's an opportunity to advise people. Yeah, we're, we're not like trying to go back to the Roman system where like your forgiveness is dependent on making satisfaction, X number of Hail Marys or whatever, blah, blah. No one's saying that. You know, that, that's just ridiculous. It's red herring. But I mean, I, it blew my mind that he had people say that to him uh, instead mm-hmm. of seeing that as an opportunity to share the wisdom of God's word. Which kind of brings us around, I think, to the underlying problem, um, and that is an antinomianism. I think all of this comes back to not really appreciating 
God's word and God's wisdom in in the scriptures. And unfortunately, it plays out as we see, and we've been kind of talking about this already, in the lack of exhortation, whether that be the lack of exhortation by the pastor in the pulpit, whether it be in Bible study, whether it be the lack of exhortation of father and mother to their children or grandparents mm-hmm. to younger people. I'm, um, you know, the lack of advice, the lack of counsel. And I, I can only see this as the devil's work to get us to not use the word of God and to not actually um, preach and teach the full counsel mm-hmm. of God. Now, I, I don't know if you had the same experience going through seminary as I did. Um, and I was talking with Peterson about this recently. And I don't, I mean, again, the, the, the seminary can only do so much. So I, I'm not trying to, to harp on them. Um, we all have a huge catechetical pile of stuff we got to go through. And, um, but I remember getting the distinct impression that like part of our job was to walk on eggshells so that we don't make someone mad so that they will call the seminary and complain. And, um, and I just, you can't live like that. And this is all of that kind of look, obviously be wise, but you're going to make some people mad and they're going to call whoever they can when they're mad. And our jobs aren't to avoid conflict, but to to meet the conflict with the word of God. And so, um, I don't know, maybe that's part of it too. This, the mindset of avoiding things that come up instead of dealing with them, like the, the idea of walking on eggshells. Yeah. I, you know, we keep bringing Peterson up, but I, I'm going to bring him up again too. <laughs> and so hopefully his ears are burning somewhere that I, I remember him. It was at a Bugenhagen talk saying, um, I think it was the first one, actually. Uh, what's that fancy word? The inaugural uh, inaugural address? <laughs> inaugural, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And he said, um, you know, when when I ask a seminarian, because there's a million seminarians that go down to Redeemer to worship, right? And so he meets all these, all these guys and, you know, why do you want to be a pastor? And he said that what he doesn't want to hear is because I want to help people. Now, obviously, he said, you know, we do want to pastors should want to be helpful, kind people. And you are fundamentally helping people with the word of God. But he was like, that. but when people say that, they think of, you know, the pastoral office as like a service, part of the service industry, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're, you're there to, you're there to help people like they're customers almost, you know, I mean? instead mm-hmm. of no, this is a man who loves the word of God. That's what he likes to hear. I love the Bible. I love the word of God because that's a man who's going to dig into the scriptures, love it, and actually then, you know, because he loves the word of God and the word is alive and active in him, cannot but preach it and teach it and exude it and and want to help people with it. So again, it's not an either or thing, but I, I do think that that's, that's part of it. That, that people have the wrong mindset of the ministry. Like, yeah, I'm just here to keep the peace. I'm just here to, you know, help people like, mm-hmm. um, you know, an usher ushering people from this place to that place instead of, no, you're here to preach the word of God. And that's going to bring, as Jesus says, division and a sword. I mean, you don't want to be a bull in a china shop, fine, whatever. But at the same time, you need to have people who are not scared of conflict. 
And that takes a man, mm-hmm. not just of thought, but of action to get back to the mm-hmm. vitalism thing. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So a- anything further on the Hogwarts Lutheranism, the feminization, the psychologization, and the antinomianism that go on? Yeah, I, I, I think those are the three points. I'm sure people could develop more. But I do think that that is a very comfortable um, uh, temptation for uh, confessional Lutherans, you might even say high church Lutherans, to have mm-hmm. the trappings but not have the essence. And um, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the liturgy. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the divine service. Um, but I think it's, 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 a very, it's a very tempting one to just kind of retreat or to escape into that. And mm-hmm. I really hope that's not the way the confessionals in the Missouri Synod go. But yeah. um, can I move to uh, the, the, the positive? Yeah, no, I was just going to say, what's the other way? What? Well, I, I think the other way, uh, which way, you know, Lutheran man is uh, heroic Lutheranism. Um, that fits very well with vitalism and vitality. And to go back to the Plato quote, you know, men of thought and action. And first and foremost, we should think of our Lord. Um, he's our conqueror. He's conquered for us. He's bound the strong man. He's freed us from sin, death, and the devil. And he is a conqueror. And in that absolute confidence, we can go out and fight as well. And we conquer by the word. So, I mean, I don't want to get into a discussion of every vocation or station that a Christian might have, but I do want to make note that when I say, you know, not just of thought, but of action, I'm including preaching and teaching and wielding the word of God as part of the action, right? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, but for other people, like a father and a mother, it would be being a good parent for, uh, you know, a, a worker at his job, it would be working hard um, and also spreading the word of God where and when he can uh, for a Christian prince or for, you know, citizens that might be to advance Christendom, right? You know, in, in, in that, uh, you know, sphere. I, I don't want to get all, all into that. I'm not trying to cover everything, but heroic Lutheranism should be, you know, men of thought and action. And very specifically, you know, Jesus says and talks about uh, us conquering by his word, and we should remember that he's the master teacher. You know, um, this kind of gets back to like Marquardt's overreaction comment, but like, you know, well, I guess I'll ask the question. You've probably heard good confessional Lutherans say, you know, Jesus isn't our example, he's our savior. Have you heard that before? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, okay, yes, he's our savior. And yes, some American evangelicalism uh, really downplays the savior part and just really talks about like the example side. But that doesn't mean that he's not our example too, you know? And Mm -hmm. he is the master teacher and he wields the word of God, the sword of the spirit in a way that we should uh, as pastors, as parents as men and women of God. And um, so I think that, you know, focusing in on the word of God and clarity of teaching is really important. And I kind of want to, you know, uh, make an aside, uh, and and I hope it's helpful. Do you remember the old saw um, back like in the mid 2000s? 
mid to late 2000s that like traditionalists in the ELCA went to Rome because they were seeking authority because there was like no authority in the ELCA. Everything was up for grabs. And that mm-hmm. Missouri Synod folks tended, if they left Lutheranism, that and they were confessionals, you know, went to the yeah. Eastern Orthodox because they wanted, you know, like liturgical worship. Do you remember that old yes, song? I do. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So people used to say that all the time. And then praise be to God, most of the defections and the apostatizing dried up. I mean, I know there's been a couple guys who have left the synod over the last few years, but there's a whole rash of people back then, like right when we were in seminary and getting out of seminary. But for the most part, it's dried up. Praise be to God. But yeah, I think- I'm actually just a side note on that, hoping to interview someone who is uh, a former Eastern Orthodox and coming into the Missouri Synod. Oh, really? That'll be interesting. Yeah. If only yeah, I listen so. to podcasts. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. Well, sort of. But, um, but, but like that old saw had a lot of truth in it. But there was another side to it that I think people were missing because it wasn't just why are they going? What are they seeking? But also, what could they stay comfortable with? You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. for ELCA folks to go to the Roman Catholic Church, many people would be like, well, why? I mean, if they're looking for authority, if they're looking for a magisterium, if they're looking for, you know, an actual structure and hierarchy, like in the Missouri Synod, we have authority, you know? I mean, we might complain about a lack of discipline and a lack of follow through and a lack of lots of stuff. And all that's legitimate, but compared to the ELCA, it's like miles and miles apart. Right. And so people would say, well, why don't they just come to the Senate? Right. And one, and, and one thing that I think a lot of people didn't understand was that they could keep all their higher critical stuff by going to Rome because Rome is totally fine yeah. with that. So it wasn't just about them going to a place where there was authority and order or anything like that, but also they didn't want to go to the Senate because they could they, they didn't want to give up that historical critical stuff. And so mm-hmm. they could keep that. Now, again, I'm willing to be corrected here, but my suspicion is, is that the guys from the Missouri Synod didn't just go to the Eastern Orthodox to, you know, gain something, but also they could stay comfortable with something. And the Eastern Orthodox, you know, are very mystical. And I think that that is very tightly linked with a lack of clarity of teaching. You know, I mean, it's cliche, but it's true. Like you press an Eastern Orthodox person on like atonement or, you know, a whole myriad of things. And those, oh, it's a mystery. It's, it's like, oh, right. okay. Waving a magic wand of mystery doesn't mean you answered the question, guy. You know? <laughs> it's like Marquardt saying, you know, the Eastern Orthodox mysticism, the, the problem yeah. with mysticism is it begins with mist and ends with schism. <laughs> I've never heard of that. That's hilarious. Or if I heard it, I forgot it. That's great. That's great. (laughs) Well, and, and I think that's the thing. Like, I think that was part of the attraction, not just they were, they were running to something, but they wanted to hold on to something and you can kind of just melt into Eastern Orthodoxy. And again, as long as you kind of take on a lot of their trappings and a lot of their stuff, there's, there's lots of quote unquote mystery that you can yeah. you can hide in and mm-hmm. kind of just do your own thing. And that and is And it's not even just just the mystery. It's like you just don't understand. You just you just yeah, don't have yeah. the gnosis. You don't have yeah. the the knowledge yeah. for it. And it's all yeah. baloney. Yeah. Oh, you don't get it. Yeah. You're right. saying that because I've 
cornered you and you're leaving for Eastern Orthodoxy for suspect and nonsense reasons and you don't want to fess up to it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's really pathetic, but either way, the, the, I, I think that just like a lot of ELCA people who went to Rome, they wanted order, but they wanted to keep all their, you know, higher critical stuff. So too, I, I think I, this is a hypothesis. I think people from the synod who went Eastern Orthodox, they, they also enjoyed being able to retain kind of that lack of clarity and just being able to kind of explore and say what they wanted and not actually ha- having to actually confront actual, you know, clear teaching and doctrine. Again, that, that's my contention. But the reason why I bring it up is that those who have left have left. You know, that, that they, they, they've, they've left and that's their problem. I pray for them. But the one, the people who have stayed and, uh, you know, all of us struggle against heresy and temptation. But I think one particular temptation that kind of discussing this, you know, really highlights is that these are retreats. You know, it's not going towards clarity of thought and clarity of teaching, um, but rather it's a retreat into something that's comfortable, that allows you to LARP, that allows you to feel traditional, even though you hang on to other things, or at least you're allowed to hang on to other things. And that's the opposite of heroic Lutheranism. A hero might not always win down here, as as you would say, um, but a hero is one who confronts reality, who is clear, has clarity of what needs to happen, and does his best with what he's got, where he's at. And um, and so that's not a retreat, even though sometimes you might lose, but you actually attack. Um, you know, you as you said, winners want the ball. You know, you don't you don't back up and get eaten up. You know, put me in coach, I'm ready to mm-hmm. play. And that's why I don't want right. us to fall into the same trap within the synod where it's like, hey, as long as we have this, then I can live with it. Or as long as we can LARP and pretend like everything's okay, then this is not a good mindset. And I do think, again, this ties in with antinomianism because antinomians and antinomianism likes to be vague and likes to stay away Mm -hmm. from particularity. And thus it is linked with mysticism. Uh, It leads us to be comfortably numb as the uh, as the poet says, who who which poet is that? Mm. Is that uh, Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, same with psychology. I, I've right? become and all the pills. Yeah. Well, I've become comfortably numb. I can't even sing it, but right? Isn't isn't that Pink Floyd? Oh, whatever. I, is it, it in the is it in the wall? Maybe. We don't need yeah. your education. Yeah. I mean, y- you I actually were alive with these. Oh, see, I was I was making that joke. Oh man, you were alive when these came out. So, but yeah, we got to stay away from being comfortably numb and complacent, and and that's why which way Lutheran man is heroic Lutheranism, and I would say like before David and of course our Lord are the ultimate. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. But I, you know, I mean, uh, I think David as a man and only a man is also a very good example. So I, I'd like to move on to David and his mighty men, but I don't know if you wanted to delve more into mysticism. No, I, I was just going to ask you where biblically besides our Lord, do we see this 
happening, uh, being played out, this kind of vitalism, tip of the spear type stuff. That is, even though there might be some losing, it's not defeatist, it's not a retreat, there's no complacency. Yeah, I, I think I think um, the story of David, the account of David, I mean, obviously all scripture is written for our learning, but I think that the detail of, you know, uh, David's story is just so vital for us to actually care about and read. I mean, the Holy Spirit has, you know, chapter after chapter after chapter written about David. I mean, um, outside of Jesus, I would challenge anyone to find another person who has so much time and attention paid to him. I mean, maybe you can think of someone, but there's more time spent on David Moses. than St. Paul. Moses, okay, well, there you go. You beat me. That was easy. <laughs> well, I mean, he I, he's got a lot of time paid attention to him, but um, I but you know, even you don't get that yeah, much with I'm, the other patriarchs, right? You don't get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even Joseph. All those sto- yeah, stories even, are kind of linked together. But I would even push back on Moses actually because. Like if for pound for pound narrative about David's life, I think there's more of David's life than Moses's life because you don't get to count all of the chapters of the law and the ceremonial law and all that kind of stuff. Like correct all of Deuteronomy. Yeah. I okay. So like yeah. I thank you for your challenge. Now now I'm going to actually have to count up the chapters. But now now that I'm now that I'm being uh, vital and I've got life and I'm I'm going to push back. I think <laughs> I think there's still more narrative chapters on David than Moses. But but be that as it may, one way or the other, if I can't say definitively now, since you've destroyed my point, uh, David David is one of the people that we get to hear the most about. And I think that's on purpose, A, because he's a type of the Messiah, but also for us to think about ourselves and holy living. To start with a negative example, I mean, we were just talking about being comfortably numb and complacent. I mean, think about David. I mean, David's a hero, right? He defeats Goliath. He leads his people. He saves them. He defeats their enemies, all this kind of stuff. But think about when David falls. He's complacent. Mm -hmm. He doesn't go out with the army. He's not doing what he should. And that's what leads to um, him committing adultery with Bathsheba. But don't worry, Jesus does it for you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Jesus does it for you. That's right. Which is true. But wouldn't you want to right. then also lead a godly life full of vitalism? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, Jesus is the ultimate example of the one who, and th- this would be another definition of heroic Lutheranism or heroic Christianity, is that, you know, we have, um, you know, in the salvation of the gospel, we have fidelity to God, and we also love our neighbors. And that's what we see with Christ perfectly. But this is also what we see with David on his best days. Um, you know, he has fidelity to God. He's a man after God's own heart. And also he loves his men. I mean, think about Jonathan, you know, being loyal to him. I mean, loyalty is a big thing about Christian vitality or heroic Lutheranism. We're loyal to God. We're loyal to our brothers in arms. And um, mm-hmm. but but when David is complacent and he sins, he isn't 
loyal to God and he's not loyal to his men. He's not loyal to his men because he doesn't go out there and lead them in battle like he should. He's not loyal to Uriah, obviously. And then also, um, Joab is not loyal to him. I mean, he's loyal to him in that he carries it out, but he doesn't actually rebuke David. And it's not like Joab is scared of rebuking David. He properly rebukes David when Absalom is killed and David's weeping, even though they've won this victory. And Joab's like, well, you know, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You know, you got to knock this off. But I mean, Joab carries Mm -hmm. out his wicked orders. Joab doesn't, you know, knock him upside the head. Um, And Mm -hmm. and so we see- He he also objects too uh, with the census, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Joab, Joab, he can smell a rat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've often wondered, like, why does Joab do this? I mean, Joab's not a perfect guy either. He does some bad stuff, but maybe it's just because he's like, well, David's going to do what he's going to do. I can't stop this and I'm not getting into it. I just care that the the nation is safe and the war is carried on. I I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. But but it's David's complacency that leads to this and his lack of fidelity to God and his men. And then on the other side, we see all of those times when David is so loyal. Um, uh, even when he, he disobeys Saul, he's still loyal insofar as he can. Um, he inspires loyalty. He leads his people. Um, he, he's, he's a hero. He's a Christian hero. And and the physicality of David's example is very good, I think, too, for us. Um, because in a you know, a world where there's so many conveniences, especially um when in regards to the pastoral ministry, you're not doing a lot of physical things. It's good to think of physical examples and get involved uh with physical pursuits. C.S. Lewis said something about like all courage is ultimately rooted in physical courage because that's what we are. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know, embodied souls, right? You know, uh, we're soul yeah. and body. And, and that's where that, that's, that's where the, the devil attacks, not just spiritual temptations, but, but fleshly things too. And it's not just David. I mean, David just shows how you create a team and you create um, people who might not be the tip of the spear, but they might be along the sides of the blade and they might be the shaft and everyone plays their part. I, I love David's mighty men at the, uh, you know, the end of second Samuel, Samuel chapter 23, you, you've got just this list of, of heroes. I mean, yeah, the Bible calls them mighty men, but I'm going to call them heroes. And, uh, you know, they, they want, they have, they have fidelity and loyalty to the Lord. They have loyalty to David. They're ready to go out and fight. I mean, you want to see examples of Christian vitality. That's where it's at. It's just excellent. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus does a similar isn't thing. isn't Uriah named among them? Uh, I think he is. Yeah. I think he is. Uh, I'm going to look it up real quick. Yeah, he is. At the very end yeah. of the chapter, verse 39, Uriah the Hittite. So we know it's the same Uriah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're ready to make gains. They're ready to make gains on mm-hmm. every front and not just punt. Sometimes it might be tactical to punt, you know, but you, you want to be hungry uh, to to fight and to win. Um, yeah. Or, or think about the example of Polycarp, right? You know, uh, they, they lead yeah. him into the arena, <laughs> you know, and uh, away, yes. away with the atheist. And he's like, away with the yeah. atheists, right? You know, you're the atheists. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I mean, that's the yeah. attitude. That's the mindset that a Christian should have. Um, he can't yeah. lose. 
he, he'll suffer. Yeah. He'll go through tribulation, but he can't lose. He's, you know, he has the, the truth of the Lord. Yeah. I mean, even when th- these early Christians are brought in for questioning by, by the Romans, uh, and they're asked their name, you know, they didn't have any identification. They don't comply. They just say, I'm a Christian. <laughs> they, yeah. They, uh, yeah. We, you know, in Latin, the form of giving your name, Christianus sum, you know, yeah. that's my name. I'm a Christian. And yeah. uh, that kind of mindset to be like, uh, you can't, you, like, you can't hurt me. Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, we should be sensitive to the fact that people do bear hard burdens. I mean, mm-hmm. we do, you do, I do, you know, everybody bears hard burdens. And uh, so this isn't just like Pollyanna put on a happy face, right? No. But at the same time, the gospel is real, and that means that we're conquerors in Christ. I mean, th- that that's just such a powerful theme in the book of Revelation, right? You know, the mm-hmm. one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who conquers. Um, it, it just is really inspirational in the best sense of the word, and it is not a virtue to be all sour and dour. I mean, there's a time to lament. Um, uh, Sean Denzer, Pastor Denzer, who's a mutual friend of ours, um, you know, he's got great stuff on lament. Have you, have you had him on about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah, last year. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, that was, yeah. Um, it's great stuff. So there's a time to lament and there's a time to plead with God and there's a time to pour out your sorrow. Um, but at the same time, I mean, uh, that is not despondency and it's not despair. Um, that is mm-hmm. antithetical to the reality of what Christ has done for us. And that's why, you know, I mean, I talked about some of the negative things going on in the Synod. Um, can we talk about positives? Is that allowed? Yeah. Okay. Always. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, going further with kind of like heroic Lutheranism, you know, if the the temptation of Hogwarts Lutheranism is to, you know, be comfortably numb in kind of like the outward comfortableness of, you know, LARPing of, you know, in, in a in a castle where the fire has gone out, then what should we be actually pushing? Well, the opposite of feminism is patriarchy. And, you know, that's that that that's something that pastors, laymen everybody should just be overjoyed to talk about that God is our patriarch. He loves us out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me, as the catechism says. And um, that means having the courage and the drive and the fortitude to say no to feminism, uh, to encourage men to lead, um, to uh, really help buck up and advise young men, especially as they mm-hmm. grow up in a in a very feministic world, and uh, and and really try to build a godly patriarchy, whether it be in our homes or congregations or communities or or whatnot. So that that would be point number one. Um, and the opposite of you know psychology, the psychologization of the church or pushing back against it would be, you know, uh, especially for not just pastors, but also parents and grandparents and, you know, 
people who have those that they have the care of to actually get good at giving advice. Um, we've got the wisdom of the ages. Um, we've got, well, first of all, we have the word of God, period. But we also have the wisdom of the ages. I mean, reading history, both biblical history and classical history or just any history, it gives you more data points. It gives you more examples. It gives you more uh, wisdom. And, you know, if if you're not sure how to handle a situation, talk to a, a wiser pastor than you or a pastor who might not even be as wise as you if you're a pastor, but it helps to go over something and get another set of eyes on it. And so just throwing people to so-called experts and professionals, or if you're a dad mm-hmm. um, or a mom, go talk to your pastor, go talk to other moms and dads. I mean, you know, to, to actually, to, to be ready to give advice and to talk through situations with other people. That's so valuable. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, I've been in the ministry almost 15 years and I still call up people and like, okay, this is what is going on. What do you think? And it's, and mm-hmm. most of the time at this point, my instinct or my plan stays relatively the same, but it's good to get another set of eyes on it. And it's good to talk it through with somebody else. Um, I, I don't mm-hmm. know if that's your experience. No, I, I think that's true too. But I also think that at least for pastors and p- perhaps in kind of the modern American context, most of our people live in their minds. And what I mean by that is they do jobs that are primarily mind work, not physical labor work. That's not everywhere. It's not completely you know, the case in every locale, but we spend a lot of times in our heads. And I, I think a good fix for that is to learn to work with your hands in one way or another. Uh, it teaches you not only how to fix uh, problems that you've created, <laughs> you know, say you're building something and you'll notice, oh, geez, I just did that wrong and it's not working. Yeah. But if you're, if you're trying to fix something that's broken, it, it, it helps you diagnose problems that you don't know immediately, only... Uh, you only have um, the evidence that there is a problem. You don't know the source of the problem. And yeah. I think because we have grown up in a time or we're, we're, we're getting to a point where, you know, most of the people didn't grow up on farms or they didn't grow up, you know, working under their dads in whatever trade they had. So that we're missing that aspect. And, yeah. I would just encourage guys to find an outlet of doing something mechanical or with your hands to to build up that part of your brain, right? To to exercise that part of your brain uh, that um, that will help you in these other situations. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, for girls too, like learning tactile mm. skills, like whether it be sewing or whatever. Um, you know, um, the mind body connection is just so important. I mean, Mm -hmm. just like, I mean, whether it be an activity, like you said, like a skilled activity or whether it be just as simple as, you know, pump an iron and you gaining the strength to say, yes, I'm going to push it up one more time. That gives Mm -hmm. you more discipline in your spiritual life too. Because it it, mm-hmm. it 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 moves your mind muscles too, that mind body connection. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And on the flip side, for folks that do 
work with their hands almost all the time. Um, and that's what they've, you know, uh, made their careers or livelihoods with. Um, I would say it's, it's good to still, even if you're not a big reader, to actually read the word of God too, because that also mm-hmm. develops other minds. I mean, that, that's like that quote, you know, we need to be men of thought and action. Both they they go right. together. They reinforce each other. It's not a, a stupid false dichotomy or something. Um, right. Yeah. No, that's that's important. Um, I've got one more on my list uh, about uh, how to combat antinomianism, and this might sound a little cliche, but it's true. And that's to be in the Word, um, because the more you're in the actual Word of God and not just slogans about the Word of God, then the more you're going to learn how to exhort and teach from the pulpit and in Bible study if you're a pastor, um, but but also exhort and teach in the home if you're a father or mother or whoever. Um, because, I mean, you know, pastors are in the public teaching office. I, I think Peterson is going to be talking about this this false distinction uh, or over overplayed distinction between preaching and teaching at that conference in mm-hmm. Collinsville. But I mean, that's been just a plague in our Missouri Synod circles about like, oh, this is preaching, not teaching. And it's like, okay, yes, there's a difference between how you're going to present something in the pulpit and in Bible study, but preaching and teaching are practically synonyms at points in the Bible. You know, there's way more overlap mm-hmm. than otherwise. And that we really should think of Jesus as the master teacher. And again, whether we're pastors or whether we're parents or whether we're neighbors or whatever our vocation is, we really should view Jesus as the master teacher. And then also Peter, Paul, Moses, David in the Psalms, that that this is... See, that's where I can get some more stuff for David from the Psalms, and then I can win the argument. I can, I can, I can use the oh, Psalms. True, <laughs> but um, but yeah, yeah, Jesus and the and the holy men of God who wrote the Bible are master teachers, and we should learn how to teach from them. That's that's just a wonderful part of combating antinomianism to be in the world and to to develop understanding, um, you know how how to be good good teachers. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think, I think it's also helpful to look at old, like old classical Lutherans, like the Lutheran divines, and read their sermons. Because um, I remember talking with Curtis about this and saying, "Look, Luther doesn't preach the way we say Lutherans should preach, or Walther doesn't preach the way we say Lutherans should preach." And we're certainly not more Lutheran than Luther, right? So um, I think for some guys who are kind of struggling with, well, what does that even look like? How do I begin um, to to kind of make that step toward teaching, giving advice, um, exhorting to good works, to holy living? You can see those examples. Obviously, you can see them in the Bible. Um, but to see our actual Lutheran forebears carry it out, that gives us just another point of, look, I've been doing this wrong, or I've been not doing it as fully as I ought to be, and there's more to learn here. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Now, can I play uh, host podcast host for a second? Yeah, sure. Okay. 
So, Pastor Broughton, what do you mean by the Lutheran divines, for those who might not know, so they can check out these sermons as well? Oh, I mean, I the ones that we have in English, for sure, I would point to Luther and his church and house postals. Uh, you can find them, you know, in the old, uh, it's not Lenski edition, but it starts with an L. Um, and then they're also in Luther's works being updated in the new editions. Then you've got Johann Gerhard. Uh, he's got, I think the Repristination Press put those out. Uh, he's got two volumes on the Gospels. Uh, you have Walther's epistle sermons as well as gospel sermons. Um, and th- those are the only ones that I know of for sure. Um, yeah. And I look at them periodically. Uh, but, you know, if you pick up the four volumes set by Fred Lindemann uh, called The Sermon on the Propers, I mean, he does not shy away from this stuff when he's giving yeah. sermon outlines, possibilities, p- uh, uh, points of. Uh, talking points within sermons, um, he does not shy away from exhortation to holiness of living or, or, or things like that. Yeah, and would you say that these would be edifying for lay people as well? Yeah, um, I think Walther and Luther are pretty accessible, uh, and even Gerhard is as well. Um, they're not using any major terms that they wouldn't be familiar with, but they're longer sermons. You know, if you're used to hearing a 20 minute sermon, this is going to take 45 minutes. um, If it were to be read out loud. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those uh, reading those sermons, I think have helped a lot of us realize that Mm -hmm. Lutheran preaching is not always what it's said to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even looking to the actual large catechism, I think that would be a big game changer if our people read the large catechism. Yeah, that's totally true. That's totally true. Yeah, and the large catechism, I mean, Luther does make some long asides, which can sometimes be mm-hmm. frustrating to people, but it's very accessible. It's not It's not super mm-hmm. hard reading. Um, or even right. if you like read it, like in a Bible study or an elder study. I've done the large catechism and an elder study before, and that was really good. Yeah. And the large catechism is free online, so that's easy. Anybody can. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, every congregation probably has a book of Concord. They can find yeah, access the to it through there, too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, can I uh, come full circle? Is that okay? I, I promise not to dump on poor Harry Pothead anymore. <laughs> yeah, please do. Like, what? Okay. What are your final thoughts? Oh, final thoughts. I, I guess these are final thoughts. Yeah. Um. So, if I dumped on Hogwarts Lutheranism, I, uh, you know, I, I'm not one of these guys that has to quote Lord of the Rings and sermons, which is pretty cringe. But I do think that there are some epic tales worthy of our attention, and that do reflect a Christian or Christendom sensibility. And, um, you know, I would say the Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia certainly fit that bill. And I would say that, you know, if you want to talk about Christian vitalism and, you know, bringing fire to hearts grown cold, I really think that uh, Gandalf is a very inspiring figure. 
Um, he, like many confessional Lutherans, has the propensity and perhaps temptation to be a little sour and dour <laughs> at times, <laughs> a little cranky, <laughs> uh, especially with those hobbits. And uh, yet he is precisely sent to Middle Earth to encourage and advise people and to rouse them to the defense of the West against the bad guy, Sauron. Um, and mm-hmm. noticeably, he is primarily to do his work by his words and his teaching and his advice. Um, he's, he's encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't just meet power with power. And so, um, again, this is not to deny that there isn't a place for a Christian prince. Far be it from me to ever say such a silly thing. But um, we, we do recognize the reality that um, – you know, it's by one little word that the devil is felled. And so I think that this fits well with, 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 with the figure of Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings, because in the Lord of the Rings, you know, they talk about like the long retreat and um, that does tempt a lot of people to despair. Um, uh, You can think about uh, Saruman who ultimately goes to the evil side um, and betrays his friends because he despairs of earthly victory. Or even perhaps more fitting, you think of Denethor, who um, falls into despair and uh, burns himself like a pagan. You know, mm-hmm. talk about pagan vitalism, that's, that's Denethor. Christian vitalism doesn't mm-hmm. do that. And there's one interesting part, um, I think it's in one of the appendices, where um, certain... Uh, is talking to Gandalf and he says, take this ring, this ring of power, uh, master. He said, for your labors will be heavy, but it will support you in the weariness that you have taken upon yourself. And I think that's very fitting for us as Christians who, you know, uh, we do take up our crosses as the Bible says, and all throughout the Lutheran divines, as you said, there's that you know, in their dogmatics, there's the locus of the cross. And it's not the theology of the cross, but it's taking up your cross. And, uh, you know, it's all about suffering in the Christian life. Andrew Price has a great STM thesis on this. It's really, really fabulous. And um, our burdens can sometimes be hard, and it's very easy to uh, get weary. But then Certain says this to Gandalf, you know, take this ring, for this is the ring of fire, and with it, you may rekindle hearts in a world that grows chill, echoing Jesus's words in Matthew mm-hmm. 22. And, you know, for us on the real earth, I mean, as nice as epics are, and I do think that they're, they're wonderful to read and kind of sink your teeth into, I certainly am not against, you know, good literature. At the same time, we, we got to have our feet grounded on the real earth and the real struggle. And uh, for us, the fire, you know, the thing that lifts up our weariness, that gets the, the chill of despair out of our bones is the gospel and the word of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's to bring life and light and fire and strength from him. Uh, and it's also to be used to convince and conquer uh, even the gates of hell. They are said to not be able to uh, stand against the church wielding the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And that mm-hmm. truly is the, uh, the vision uh, for heroic Lutheranism. That's awesome. Thank you for your time and, and this insight taking us through uh, Christian vitality or which way Lutheran man 
heroic Lutheranism. <laughs> yeah, um, which way? <laughs> um, for for well, for leading us the charge on on looking at the right way or the better way. Maybe that's the the, the way, the better way. So <laughs> thanks for your time, and look forward to chatting with you again. Yeah, awesome to be with you guys. Thanks. Thanks.